Chapter 9, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shubda Garani. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 9, Part 2. Santa Cruz, Patagonia, and the Falkland Islands. Sixteenth, I will now describe a short excursion which made round a part of this island. In the morning, I started with six horses and two gauchos. The latter were capital men for the purpose, and well accustomed to living on their own resources. The weather was very boisterous and cold, with heavy hailstorms. We got on, however, pretty well but except the geology nothing could be less interesting than our day's ride the country is uniformly the same undulating moorland the surface being covered by light brown withered grass and a few very small shrubs all springing out of an elastic peaty soil in the valleys here and there might be seen a small flock of wild geese and everywhere the ground was so soft that the snipe were able to feed besides these two birds there were few others there is one main range of hills nearly two thousand feet in height and composed of quartz rock the rugged and barren crests of which gave us some trouble to cross on the south side we came to the best country for wild cattle we met however no great number for they had been lately much harassed in the evening we came across a small herd one of my companions in jago by name soon separated a fat cow he threw the bolas and it struck her legs but failed in becoming entangled then dropping his hat to mark the spot where the balls were left while at full gallop he uncoiled his lasso and after a most severe chase again came up to the cow and caught her round the horns the other gaucho had gone on ahead with the spare horses so that st jago had some difficulty in killing the furious beast he managed to get her on a level piece of ground by taking advantage of her as often as she rushed at him and when she would not move my horse from having been trained would canter up and with his chest give her a violent push but when on level ground it does not appear an easy job for one man to kill a beast mad with terror nor would it be so if the horse when left to itself without its rider did not soon learn for its own safety to keep the lasso tight so that if the cow or ox moves forward the horse moves just as quickly forward otherwise it stands motionless leaning on one side this horse however was a young one and would not stand still but gave in to the cow as she struggled it was admirable to see with what dexterity st jago dodged behind the beast till at last he contrived to give the fatal touch to the main tendon of the hind leg after which without much difficulty he drove his knife into the head of the spinal marrow and the cow dropped as if struck by lightning he cut off pieces of flesh with the skin to it but without any bones sufficient for our expedition we then rode on to our sleeping place and had for supper 
carne con cuero, or meat roasted with the skin on it. This is as superior to common beef as venison is to mutton. A large circular piece taken from the back is roasted on the embers with the hide downwards and is in the form of a saucer, so that none of the gravy is lost. If any worthy alderman had supped with us that evening, Corne con cuero, without doubt, would soon have been celebrated in London. During the night it rained, and the next day, 17th, was very stormy, with much hail and snow. We rode across the island to the neck of land which joins the Rincon del Toro, the great peninsula at the southwest extremity, to the rest of the island. From the great number of cows which have been killed, there is a large proportion of bulls. These wander about single, or two and three together, and are very savage. I never saw such magnificent beasts. They equaled in the size of their huge heads and necks the Grecian marble sculptures. Captain Sullivan informs me that the hide of an average-sized bull weighs 47 pounds, whereas a hide of this weight, less thoroughly dried, is considered as a very heavy one at Montevideo. The young bulls generally run away for a short distance, but the old ones do not stir a step, except to rush at man and horse, and many horses have been thus killed. An old bull crossed a boggy stream and took his stand on the opposite side to us. We in vain tried to drive him away, and failing, were obliged to make a larger circuit. The gauchos in revenge determined to emasculate him and render him for the future harmless. It was very interesting to see how art completely mastered force. One lasso was thrown over his horns as he rushed at the horse, and another round his hind legs. In a minute the monster was stretched powerless on the ground. After the lasso has once been drawn tightly around the horns of a furious animal, it does not at first appear an easy thing to disengage it again without killing the beast, nor I apprehend would it be so if the man was by himself. By the aid, however, of a second person throwing his lasso so as to catch both hind legs, it is quickly managed, for the animal, as long as its hind legs are kept outstretched, is quite helpless, and the first man can with his hands loosen his lasso from the horns and then quietly mount his horse but the moment the second man by backing ever so little relaxes the strain the lasso slips off the legs of the struggling beast which then rises free shakes himself and vainly rushes at his antagonist during our whole ride we saw only one troop of wild horses these animals as well as the cattle were introduced by the french in seventeen sixty four since which time both have greatly increased it is a curious fact that the horses have never left the eastern end of the island although there is no natural boundary to prevent them from roaming and that part of the island is not more tempting than the rest the gauchos whom i asked though asserting this to be the case were unable to account for it except from the strong attachment which horses have to any locality to which they are accustomed. Considering that the island does not appear fully stocked, and that there are no beasts of prey, 
I was particularly curious to know what has checked their originally rapid increase. That in a limited island some check would sooner or later supervene is inevitable. But why had the increase of the horse been checked sooner than that of the cattle? Captain Sullivan has taken much pains for me in this inquiry. The gauchos employed here, attributed chiefly to the stallions constantly roaming from place to place, and compelling the mares to accompany them, whether or not the young foals are able to follow. One gaucho told Captain Sullivan that he watched a stallion for a whole hour, violently kicking and biting a mare till he forced her to leave her foal to its fate. Captain Sullivan can so far corroborate this curious account that he has several times found young foals dead, whereas he has never found a dead calf. Moreover, the dead bodies of full-grown horses are more frequently found, as if more subject to disease or accidents, than those of the cattle. From the softness of the ground their hoofs often grow irregularly to a great length, and this causes lameness. The predominant colors are roan and iron-gray. All the horses bred here, both tame and wild, are rather small-sized, though generally in good condition, and they have lost so much strength that they are unfit to be used in taking wild cattle with the lasso. In consequence, it is necessary to go to the great expense of importing fresh horses from the Plata. At some future period, the southern hemisphere probably will have its breed of Falkland ponies, as the northern has its Shetland breed. The cattle, instead of having degenerated like the horses seem, as before remarked, to have increased in size, and they are much more numerous than the horses. Captain Sullivan informs me that they vary much less in the general form of their bodies and in the shape of their horns than English cattle. In color they differ much, and it is a remarkable circumstance that in different parts of this one small island different colors predominate. Around Mount Osborne, at a height of from 1,000 to 15,000 feet above the sea, about half of some of the herds are mouse or lead-colored, a tint of which is not common in other parts of the island. Near Port Pleasant, dark brown prevails, whereas south of Choisel Sound, which almost divides the island into two parts, white beasts with black heads and feet are the most common. In all parts, black and some spotted animals may be observed. Captain Sullivan remarks that the difference in the prevailing colors was so obvious that in looking for the herds near Port Pleasant, they appeared from a long distance like black spots, whilst south of Choisil Sound, they appeared like white spots on the hillsides. Captain Sullivan thinks that the herds do not mingle, and it is a singular fact that the mouse-colored cattle, though living on highland, calve about a month earlier in the season than the other colored beasts on the lower land. It is interesting thus to find the once domesticated cattle breaking into three colors, of which some one color would in all probability ultimately prevail over the others if the herds were left undisturbed for the next several centuries. The rabbit is another animal which has been introduced, 
and has succeeded very well, so that they abound over large parts of the island. Yet, like the horses, they are confined within certain limits, for they have not crossed the central chain of hills, nor would they have extended even so far as its base, if, as the Gauchos informed me, small colonies has not been carried there. I should not have supposed that these animals, natives of northern Africa, could have existed in a climate so humid as this, and which enjoys so little sunshine that even wheat ripens only occasionally. It is asserted that in Sweden, which any one would have thought a more favorable climate, the rabbit cannot live out of doors. The first few pairs, moreover, had here to contend against pre-existing enemies, in the fox and some large hawks. The French naturalists have considered the black variety a distinct species, and called it Lepus Magellanicus. Begin footnote. Lessons Zoology of the Voyage of the Coquille, Tom I, page 168. All the early voyagers, and especially Bougainville, distinctly state that the wolf-like fox was the only native animal on the island. The distinction of the rabbit as a species is taken from peculiarities in the fur, from the shape of the head, and from the shortness of the ears. I may here observe that the difference between the Irish and the English hair rests upon nearly similar characters, only more strongly marked. End footnote. They imagined that Magellan, when talking of an animal under the name Conyehos in the Strait of Magellan, referred to the species. But he was alluding to a small cavy, which to this day is thus called by the Spaniards. The Gauchos laughed at the idea of the black kind being different from the grey, and they said that at all events it had not extended its range any further than the grey kind, that the two were never found separate, and that they readily bred together and produced piebald offspring. Of the latter I now possess a specimen, and it is marked about the head differently from the French specific description. This circumstance shows how cautious naturalists should be in making species, for even Cuvier, on looking at the skull of one of these rabbits, thought it was probably distinct. The only quadruped native to the island is a large wolf-like fox, Canis Antarcticus, which is common to both East and West Falkland. Begin footnote. I have reason, however, to suspect that there is a field mouse. The common European rat and mouse have roamed far from the habitations of the settlers. The common hog has also run wild on one islet. All are of black color. The boars are very fierce and have great trunks. End footnote. I have no doubt it is a peculiar species and confined to this archipelago, because many sealers, gauchos, and Indians who have visited these islands all maintain that no such animal is found in any part of South America. Molina, from a similarity in habits, thought that this was the same with a sculpu, but I have seen both, and they are quite distinct. Begin footnote. The culpu is the Canis Magellanicus brought home by Captain King from the Strait of Magellan. It is common in Chile. End footnote. 
these wolves are well known from byron's account of their tameness and curiosity which the sailors who ran into the water to avoid them mistook for fierceness to this day their manners remain the same they have been observed to enter a tent and actually pull some meat from beneath the head of a sleeping seaman the goshos also have frequently in the evening killed them by holding out a piece of meat in one hand and in the other a knife ready to stick them as far as i am aware there is no other instance in any part of the world of so small a mass of broken land distant from a continent possessing so large an aboriginal quadruped peculiar to itself their numbers have rapidly decreased they are already banished from that half of the island which lies to the eastward of the neck of land between st salvador bay and berkeley sound within a very few years after these islands shall have become regularly settled in all probability this for will be classed with the dodo as an animal which has perished from the face of the earth at night seventeenth we slept on the neck of land at the head of choice hill sound which forms the southwest peninsula the valley was pretty well sheltered from the cold wind but there was very little brushwood for fuel the gauchos however soon found what to my great surprise made nearly as hot a fire as coals this was the skeleton of a bullock lately killed from which the flesh had been picked by the carrion hawks they told me that in winter they often killed a beast cleaned the flesh from the bones with their knives and then with these same bones roasted the meat for their suppers eighteenth it rained during nearly the whole day at night we managed however with our saddle cloths to keep ourselves pretty well dry and warm but the ground on which we slept was on each occasion nearly in the state of a bog and there was not a dry spot to sit down on after our day's ride i have in another part stated how singular it is that there should be absolutely no trees on these islands although tierra del fuego is covered by one large forest the largest bush in this island belonging to the family of compositae is scarcely so tall as our gorse the best fuel is afforded by a green little bush about the size of a common heath which has the useful property of burning while fresh and green it was very surprising to see the gauchos in the midst of rain and everything soaking wet with nothing more than a tinder-box and a piece of rag immediately make a fire they sought beneath the tufts of grass and bushel for a few dry twigs and these they rubbed into fibres then surrounding them with coarser twigs something like a bird's nest they put the rag with its spark of fire in the middle and covered it up the nest being then held up to the wind by degrees it smoked more and more and at last burst out into flames i do not think any other method would have had a chance of succeeding with such damp materials nineteenth each morning from not having ridden for some time previously i was very stiff i was surprised to hear the gauchos who have from infancy almost lived on horseback say that 
under similar circumstances, they always suffer. St. Jago told me that having been confined for three months by illness, he went out hunting wild cattle, and in consequence, for the next two days, his thighs were so stiff that he was obliged to lie in bed. This shows that the gauchos, although they do not appear to do so, yet really must exert much muscular effort in riding. The hunting of cattle in a country so difficult to pass as this, on account of the swampy ground, must be very hard work. The gauchos say that they often pass at full speed over ground, which would be impassable at a slower pace, in the same manner as a man is able to skate over thin ice. When hunting, the party endeavors to get as close as possible to the herd without being discovered. Each man carries four or five pair of the bolas. These he throws one after another at as many cattle, which, when once entangled, are left for some days till they become a little exhausted by hunger and struggling. They are then let free and driven towards a small herd of tame animals which have been brought to the spot on purpose. From their previous treatment, being too much terrified to leave the herd, they are easily driven, if their strength lasts out to the settlement. The weather continued so very bad that we determined to make a push and try to reach the vessel before night. From the quantity of rain which had fallen, the surface of the whole country was swampy. I suppose my horse fell at least a dozen times, and sometimes the whole six horses were floundering in the mud together. All the little streams are bordered by soft peat, which makes it very difficult for the horses to leap them without falling. To complete our discomforts, we were obliged to cross the head of a creek of the sea, in which the water was as high as our horses' backs, and the little waves, owing to the violence of the wind, broke over us and made us very wet and cold. Even the iron-framed gauchos professed themselves glad when they reached the settlement after our little excursion. The geological structure of these islands is in most respects simple. The lower country consists of clay slate and sandstone, containing fossils very closely related to, but not identical with those found in the Silurian formations of Europe. The hills are formed of white granular quartz rock. The strata of the latter are frequently arched with perfect symmetry, and the appearance of some of the masses is in consequence most singular. Pernity has devoted several pages to the description of a hill of ruins, the successive strata of which he has justly compared to the seats of an amphitheatre. Begin footnote, Pernity, Voyage of Isle, Malonis, page 526, and footnote. The quartz rock must have been quite pasty when it underwent such remarkable flexures, without being shattered into fragments. As the quartz insensibly passes into the sandstone, it seems probable that the former owes its origin to the sandstone having been heated to such a degree that it became whisked, and upon cooling crystallized. While in the soft state it must have been pushed up through the overlying beds. 
In many parts of the island, the bottoms of the valleys are covered in an extraordinary manner by myriads of great, loose, angular fragments of the quartz rock, forming streams of stones. These have been mentioned with surprise by every voyager since the time of Pernity. The blocks are not water-worn, their angles being only a little blunted. They vary in size from one or two feet in diameter to ten or even more than twenty times as much. They are not thrown together in irregular piles, but are spread out into level sheets or great streams. It is not possible to ascertain their thickness, but the water of small streamlets can be heard trickling through the stones many feet below the surface. The actual depth is probably great, because the crevices between the lower fragments must long ago have been filled up with sand. The width of these sheets of stones varied from a few hundred feet to a mile, but the peaty soil daily encroaches on the borders and even forms islets wherever a few fragments happen to lie close together. In a valley south of Berkeley Sound, which some of our party called the Great Valley of Fragments, it was necessary to cross an uninterrupted band half a mile wide by jumping from one pointed stone to another. So large were the fragments that being overtaken by a shower of rain I readily found shelter beneath one of them. Their little inclination is the most remarkable circumstance in these streams of stones. On the hillsides I have seen them sloping at an angle of ten degrees with the horizon, but in some of the level, broad-bottomed valleys, the inclination is only just sufficient to be clearly perceived. On so rugged a surface there was no means of measuring the angle, but to give a common illustration I may say that the slope would not have checked the speed of an English mail-coach. In some places a continuous stream of these fragments followed up the course of a valley and even extended to the very crest of the hill. On these crests, huge masses, exceeding in dimensions any small building, seemed to stand arrested in their headlong course. There, also, the curved strata of the archways lay piled on each other, like the ruins of some vast and ancient cathedral. In endeavouring to describe these scenes of violence, one is tempted to pass from one simile to another. We may imagine that streams of white lava had flowed from many parts of the mountains into the lower country, and that when solidified they had been rent by some enormous convulsion into myriads of fragments. The expression, streams of stones, which immediately occurred to every one, conveys the same idea. These scenes are on the spot rendered more striking by the contrast of the low, rounded forms of the neighboring hills. I was interested by finding on the highest peak of one range, about 700 feet above the sea, a great arched fragment lying on its convex side or back downwards. Must we believe that it was fairly pitched up in the air and thus turned? Or with more probability, that there existed formerly a part of the same range more elevated than the point on which this monument of a great convulsion of nature now lies. As the fragments in the valleys are neither rounded nor the crevices filled up with sand, 
we must infer that the period of violence was subsequent to the land having been raised above the waters of the sea in a transverse section within these valleys the bottom is nearly level or rises but very little towards either side hence the fragments appear to have travelled from the head of the valley but in reality it seems more probable that they have been hurled down from the nearest slopes and that since by a vibratory movement of overwhelming force the fragments have been levelled into one continuous sheet if during the earthquake which in eighteen thirty five overthrew concepcion in chile it was thought wonderful that small bodies should have been pitched a few inches from the ground what must we say to a movement which has caused fragments many tons in weight to move onwards like so much sand on a vibrating board and find their level begin footnote an inhabitant of mendoza and hence well capable of judging assured me that during the several years he had resided on these islands he had never felt the slightest shock of an earthquake End footnote i have seen in the cordillera of the andes the evident marks where stupendous mountains have been broken into pieces like so much thin crust and the strata thrown off their vertical edges but never did any scene like these streams of stones so forcibly convey to my mind the idea of a convulsion of which in historical records we might in vain seek for any counterpart yet the progress of knowledge will probably some day give a simple explanation of this phenomenon as it already has of the so long thought inexplicable transportal of the erratic boulders which are strewed over the plains of europe i have little to remark on the zoology of these islands i have before described the carrion vulture of polyborus there are some other hawks owls and a few small land birds the waterfowl are particularly numerous and they must formerly from the accounts of the old navigators have been much more so one day i observed a cormorant playing with a fish which it had caught eight times successively the bird let its prey go then dived after it and although in deep water brought it each time to the surface in the zoological gardens i have seen the otter treat a fish in the same manner much as a cat does a mouse i do not know of any other instance where dame nature appears so wilfully cruel another day having placed myself between a penguin aptinoditis demersa and the water i was much amused by watching its habits it was a brave bird and till reaching the sea it regularly fought and drove me backwards nothing less than heavy blows would have stopped him every inch he gained he firmly kept standing close before me erect and determined when thus opposed he continually rolled his head from side to side in a very odd manner as if the power of distinct vision lay only in the anterior and basal part of each eye this bird is commonly called the jackass penguin from its habit while on shore of throwing its head backwards and making a loud strange noise very like the braying of an ass but while at sea and undisturbed its note is very deep and solemn and is often heard in the night-time
In diving, its little wings are used as fins, but on land as front legs. When crawling, it may be said on four legs, through the tussocks or on the side of a grassy cliff, it moves so very quickly that it might easily be mistaken for a quadruped. When at sea and fishing, it comes to the surface for the purpose of breathing with such a spring and dives again so instantaneously that I defy anyone at first sight to be sure that it was not a fish leaping for sport. Two kinds of geese frequent the Falklands. The upland species, Anas magellanica, is common, in pairs and in small flocks throughout the island. They do not migrate, but build on the small outlying islets. This is supposed to be from fear of the foxes, and it is perhaps from the same cause that these birds, though very tame by day, are shy and will in the dusk of the evening. They live entirely on vegetable matter. The rock goose, so-called from living exclusively on the sea beach, in us Antarctica, is common both here and on the west coast of America as far north as Chile. In the deep and retired channels of Tierra del Fuego, the snow-white gander, invariably accompanied by his darker consort, and standing close by each other on some distant rocky point, is a common feature in the landscape. In these islands, a great loggerhead duck or goose, Enas brycaptera, which sometimes weighs 22 pounds, is very abundant. These birds were in former days called, from their extraordinary manner of paddling and splashing upon the water, racehorses, but now they are named, much more appropriately, steamers. Their wings are too small and weak to allow of flight but by their aid, partly swimming and partly flapping the surface of the water, they move very quickly. The manner is something like that by which a common house duck escapes when pursued by a dog. But I am nearly sure that the steamer moves its wings alternately instead of both together as in other birds. These clumsy loggerhead ducks make such a noise and splashing that the effect is exceedingly curious. Thus we find in South America three birds which use their wings for other purposes besides flight, the penguins as fins, the steamer as paddles, and the ostrich as sails. And the apterize of New Zealand, as well as its gigantic extinct prototype, the Daenornis, possess only rudimentary representatives of wings. The steamer is able to dive only to a very short distance. It feeds entirely on shellfish from the kelp and tidal rocks. Hence the beak and the head, for the purpose of breaking them, are surprisingly heavy and strong. The head is so strong that I have scarcely been able to fracture it with my geological hammer. And all our sportsmen soon discovered how tenacious these birds were of life. When in evening, pluming themselves in a flock, they make the same odd mixture of sounds which bullfrogs do within the tropics. In Tierra del Fuego, as well as in the Falkland Islands, I made many observations on the lower marine animals, but they are of little general interest. Begin footnote. I was surprised to find, on counting the eggs of a large white doris, how extraordinarily numerous they were. 
this sea slug was three and a half inches long. From two to five eggs were contained in a spherical little case, each three thousandth of an inch in diameter. These were arranged two deep in transverse rows forming a ribbon. The ribbon adhered to the edge of the rock in an oval spire. One which I found measured nearly twenty inches in length and half in breadth. By counting how many balls were contained in a tenth of an inch in a row, and how many rows in an equal length of the ribbon, on the most moderate computation there were six hundred thousand eggs. Yet this Doris was certainly not very common, although I was often searching under the stones, I saw only seven individuals. No fallacy is more common with naturalists than that the number of an individual species depend on its powers of propagation. End footnote. I will mention only one class of facts relating to certain zoophytes in the more highly organized division of that class. Several genera, flustra, escara, salaria, Chrysia and others agree in having singular movable organs attached to their cells, like those of Flustra avicularia found in the European seas. The organ, in the greater number of cases, very closely resembles the head of a vulture, but the lower mandible can be opened much wider than in a real bird's beak. The head itself possessed considerable powers of movement by means of a short neck. In one zoophyte, the head itself was fixed, but the lower jaw free. In another, it was replaced by a triangular hood with beautifully fitted trapdoor, which evidently answered to the lower mandible. In the greater number of species, each cell was provided with one head, but in others, each cell had two. The young cells at the end of the branches of these corallines contain quite immature polypi, yet the vulture head attached to them, though small, are in every respect perfect. When the polypus was removed by a needle from any of these cells, these organs did not appear in the least affected. When one of the vulture-like heads was cut off from the cell, the lower mandible retained its power of opening and closing. Perhaps the most singular part of their structure is that when there are more than two rows of cells on a branch, the central cells were furnished with these appendages of only one-fourth the size of the outside ones. Their movements varied according to the species, but in some I never saw the least motion, while others, with the lower mandible generally wide open, oscillated backwards and forwards at the rate of about five seconds each turn. Others moved rapidly and by starts. When touched with a needle, the beak generally seized the point so firmly that the whole branch might be shaken. These bodies have no relation whatever with the production of the eggs or gemmules, as they are formed before the young polypi appear in the cells at the end of the growing branches. As they move independently of the polypi and do not appear to be in any way connected with them, and as they differ in size on the outer and inner rows of cells. I have little doubt that in their functions they are related rather to the horny axis 
of the branches than to the polypi in the cells. The fleshy appendage at the lower extremity of the sea pen, described at Bahia Blanca, also forms part of the zoophyte as a whole, in the same manner as the roots of a tree form part of the whole tree and not of the individual leaf or flower buds. In another elegant little coralline, Chrysia, each cell was furnished with a long-toothed bristle which had the power of moving quickly. Each of these bristles and each of the vulture-like heads generally moved quite independently of the others, but sometimes all on both sides of a branch, sometimes only those on one side moved together co-instantaneously. Sometimes each moved in regular order one after another. In these actions we apparently behold as perfect a transmission of will in the zoophyte, though composed of thousands of distinct polypi as in any single animal. The case indeed is not different from that of the sea pens which, when touched, drew themselves into the sand on the coast of Bahia Blanca. I will state one other instance of uniform action, though of a very different nature in a zoophyte closely allied to Clytia and therefore very simply organized. Having kept a large tuft of it in a basin of salt water, when it was dark I found that as often as I rubbed any part of a branch, the whole became strongly phosphorescent with a green light. I do not think I ever saw any object more beautifully so. But the remarkable circumstance was that the flashes of light always proceeded up the branches from the base towards the extremities. The examination of these compound animals was always very interesting to me. What can be more remarkable that to see a plant-like body producing an egg, capable of swimming about and of choosing a proper place to adhere to, which then sprouts into branches, each crowded with innumerable distinct animals, often of complicated organizations. The branches, moreover, as we had just seen, sometimes possess organs capable of movement and independent of the polypi. Surprising as this union of separate individuals in common stock must always appear, every tree displays the same fact, for buds must be considered as individual plants. It is, however, natural to consider a polypus, furnished with a mouth, intestines, and other organs, as a distinct individual, whereas the individuality of a leaf bud is not easily realized so that the union of separate individuals in a common body is more striking in a coralline than in a tree. Our conception of a compound animal, where in some respects the individuality of each is not completed, may be aided by reflecting on the production of two distinct creatures by bisecting a single one with a knife, or where nature herself performs the task of bisection. We may consider the polypi in a zoophyte or the buds in a tree as cases where the division of the individual has not been completely effected. Certainly in the case of trees, and judging from the analogy in that of the corallines, the individuals propagated by buds seem more intimately related to each other than eggs or seeds are to their parents.
It seems now pretty well established that plants propagated by buds all partake of a common duration of life, and it is familiar to every one what singular and numerous peculiarities are transmitted with certainty by buds, layers, and grafts, which by seminal propagation never or only causally reappear. End of chapter 9, part 2